Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today, I'm here with Teddy Himmler. Teddy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man, absolutely. Teddy is a partner with Antler, which is a venture capital firm that focuses on what he calls emerging tech ecosystems, something that we're going to get into pretty heavy on this conversation. And he was previously at SoftBank, Comcast Ventures, and Goldman Sachs. And I must say, I've done 160 odd of these. You probably have the most impressive CV and like the shortest bio I've ever read off. So good for you. You you kind of get right into it, which I love. Um, so we connected at a family office conference where you did a super cool presentation called The Case for Global Venture Capital Investing and The Case for Investing Early. Yeah. So let's kind of start there. Um, interesting, we're recording this when tech and, and your former employer, SoftBank, are just getting murdered yeah. in the market. Yeah. And it's a complete meltdown. That probably means it's a pretty good time to be investing because if I remember correctly, the old Wall Street saying is, you know, entrepreneurship is born in a recession, right? Yeah, that's right. Some of the hallmark companies that we see today were all born amidst 2009. And, you know, I think we're going to see a similar, a similar uh, uh, effect here in the next couple of years. So let's maybe give a snapshot before we go brass tacks. Um, let's just talk about kind of the venture capital ecosystem in general and the impact it's had on, we'll start with the U.S. economy, for instance. Um, you know, just enormous in terms of the amount of value it's created. Could you maybe give us just a sense of, of what that looks like in terms of the impact that VC and tech has had on the U.S. economy, including public companies today? Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, so, 
you know, venture has, I call it the Archimedean lever. What I mean by that is it's NASA class that works best in small batches, but it has an enormous outcome uh, on, you know, the global economy. So, you know, 40 of, of uh, you know, publicly traded U.S. companies founded since 1979, about 43% of those companies were venture backed and about 60%, nearly 60% of U.S. market cap uh, is contributed by venture backed companies. It makes up about 40% of the you know, workforce and, and growing, as you, you could imagine, and you know, more than 80% of the R&D spend. Um, and uh, it's, you know, what's interesting, that's all US statistics, but the bet that we're wagering at Antler is that those sorts of statistics are also true in other economies around the world, developing or developed. Let's define that so that we can use those terms later on the conversation. What do you consider or what is your rubric for developed, developing, emerging, frontier? What's the terminology that we should use so we're on the same page? Yeah. Um, I think if you were to think about it in quantitative terms, uh, you know, developed economies tend to have GDP per capita of, let's say, greater than 10,000. You know, that's kind of China and above. Um, you know, I think I think of emerging, you know, around about you know, close to Indonesia, you know, 4,000 GDP per capita, upwards to 10,000. And then frontier, you know, India is somewhere between emerging and frontier, but, you know, there's a lot of frontier economies as well in Africa and in South Asia. So those are the kind of three tiers that we do it. But, you know, I always, in my, I'm a student of, you know, the development of the China ecosystem and that ecosystem really took off among for among other reasons, having enough discretionary income close to you know five to seven thousand USD per capita. So those in a quantitative lens, that's that's thereabouts the classifications. So you worked at some unbelievable firms, and and notably SoftBank be, being based in Southeast Asia with a big footprint there. Was that always an interest for you that you wanted to be in the developing world, or was that something that? you got exposed to through these firms and it just became enamored with what, what was the story there? So I, I think it is started as an academic interest of mine. Um, so at Harvard, I took a class by a guy named Neil Ferguson. And if anybody's ever listened to Neil, uh, he often talks about, you know, there's this uh, degeneration of the West and it's the, the ascendancy of the East. And, you know, there's this notion of chimerica of the relationship between China and the U S and so, you know, I had the fortunate ability to go out to China in 2008 and see the cranes, the countless cranes in Shanghai as that was, you know, emerging. And, you know, when I was then a couple of years later in the professional world, you know, I had witnessed, um, you know, the growth of Alibaba and Tencent in the early 2010s. And wow, like thought to myself, it, more than a coin flips chance, this could be the Asian century. And then put that uh, sort of um, thought into practice, wherein when I joined SoftBank, it was more of a pull than a push on my side, but it was, I was an analyst at Goldman and was working a bit on the sale of Sprint to SoftBank and, you know, SoftBank has benefited from the rise of the East and um, most notably their investment in Alibaba. And so my pull, the reason they were able to acquire Sprint inevitably was because they had this big stake in Alibaba. I joined SoftBank after that acquisition, and um, 
you know, had a, a lot of exposure to the emergence then of Southeast Asia, wherein Antler is headquartered today. Um, and then most more recently, the LATAM, um, you know, Sopping launched the LATAM fund in 2017, um, had done quite some investments in India. So it was through that lens of, uh, of you know, first starting with academic interest, but then kind of felt the pull of Asia, given all of these amazing companies that have been born over the past you know, two decades. So that's that was the genesis for how my academic and, and interest actually turned more into a professional um, trajectory. There's a concept that you talk about in the presentation that the private investors, especially the ones who get up in early in these deals, in these companies, are the ones making the profits in terms of, as opposed to the public investors. And could you maybe talk us through because I never thought about it that way, right? Yeah. And obviously with a cooling IPO market, but still massive amounts of VC funds being raised, this show is oriented towards high net worth individuals and families, many of whom are interested in, in VC investing. Could you maybe talk us through that dynamic? Yeah, for sure. So there's been a sea change you know, in uh, where profits are generated and uh, technology investing. You know, when Microsoft went public, uh, it was sub a billion dollar market cap. That was, I want to say, in you know ninety five or so. Um, uh, actually, sorry, nineteen eighty six. That that was sub a billion dollar market cap. But when you have you know Facebook, when Facebook went public, it was you know twenty thirty billion dollar market cap, and it has grown you know dramatically since then. And so you've the the private companies inevitably are staying are staying private much longer. Those returns have accrued to those who have gotten early to those companies, which represent, you know, a relatively small number of firms getting into those companies. Um, the private markets, you know, the number, one interesting statistic is if you look at the public markets, the half-life of companies is shortening. What I mean by that is um, the number of companies that are in the in the S&P 500, the lifetime is shortening. I mean, it was like 30 years in 1970, it's closer to 15 years now. And so with that happening, there's a, um, an opportunity to invest in you know, the, the private markets and you know, those, those, the, that, the companies that are entering the S&P 500 over the next 10 years, like Tesla and others, um, those are the real, that's where the real opportunity is instead of picking out the winners, which may be more on the mature end in the public markets. Um, so that's been, that, that's been true for really the last, you know, almost two decades now, where there's been greater uh, market cap accrual, greater enterprise value accrual in the private markets. Um, and increasingly, yeah, and, and just going to say increasingly big asset managers are moving earlier and earlier and earlier. You see BlackRock and Fidelity and Wellington all investing even at the Series A stage now. Um, and, and that's to capture some of that value. Right. And there's a there's a really cool slide, which you just referenced about how this value creation is accruing to the private investor, more so because these companies are staying private longer. So that value creation kind of dynamic is occurring longer. And then once they actually do have the liquidity event, to your point about the turnover in the S&P, oftentimes the, that substance of the value has already been kind of won and lost early on. Yeah, 
That's right. And one thing I'd add, and this almost gets into, this might be a nice segue to the antler model, is the art and science of creating a large company has been refined and refined and over the last couple of decades, wherein it's almost become like akin to making a movie where, you know, you, you bring in the right talent, you have the right capital, the right idea, the right venture funds. And, you know, it's by no means guaranteed success, but the boom and bust cycle and the, the hit ratios in venture have become a lot more scientific um, over time. And you can look no further than companies like Snowflake, um, which, you know, really came out of the ideas of a, you know, venture fund, uh, you know, Sutter Hill Ventures, GP, and where we at Antler, uh, interestingly enough, are helping form companies at the earliest of stages, at the pre-seed, you know, day minus 30 uh, level. And, and let's, let's go there, right? So this Antler model, early stage, could you define, I feel like early stages, what it used to be 10 years ago, 20 years ago, is totally different than today. And when we're recording this, you know, it might not be the case five years from now, but what are you guys considering early stage today? Yeah. So we're an early stage venture capital firm, um, wherein there are, I think, two or let's say, let's say there's three different inflection points for a company. The first is getting the band together, you know, getting the idea, the getting the sound right, you know, ensuring that you have a co-founder. And we at Antler, across 25 locations across the world, um, across 15 regional pre-seed funds, each uh, investing uh, uh, concurrently, are uh, sorting through some tens of thousands of applications to bring the best entrepreneurs in those regions uh, to our locations and creating some 200 companies around the world where per year. Um, and that is really the pre-seed stage. We're investing, you know, call it around about $150,000 for 7% of a company and bringing a lot of platform value add to those businesses, including founder matchmaking and, you know, helping you find your next round of capital and, you know, helping you refine the idea and the presentation. The next phase is really, I would call the seed stage, wherein your product is built, the direction is clear, you need, and you need to fill the tank to uh, get to the, the sort of product market fit stage. There's not much traction on the business at the seed stage, but you have, you have the concept and the team roughly in place. Then you get to this pre-A or A stage, which is where the fund that I run, the Antler Global Fund, um, that invests, you know, at the pre-A A stage um, and uh, is really around the concept of product market fit. Is this working? Is there, you know, commercial legs? Is there revenue? Is the unit, unit economics discernible? Um, and that's where we, in, we invest. So all of those stages, pre-seed, seed, pre-AA, that's early stage. The, sec the next inflection point, which you'd call emerging growth or growth, is where, is where there's, um, you know, really an inflection point in the business around one particular product or a geography or, uh, you know, a new sort of rigorous hire set of hires you need to make. That's really that emerging growth and growth phase. You, you point on your presentation, you make a statement that 
the globalization of venture capital is the trend of the decade. Yeah. And that we're in a sustained golden age of innovation. Yeah. Yeah. So take this statistic. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about the slide that you're looking at on your side, Brian. Um, in 2013, there was one technology country or ecosystem, the United States, that had greater than $10 billion of annual venture capital funding. Flash forward, uh, not even 10 years, you know, so in 2021, uh, there were 13 regions around the world that were over $10 billion of annual venture capital funding. And, you know, certainly the US with half the global venture capital funding is still the most attractive market for investing and returns. Um, you know, China, there was over $100 billion of annual venture capital funding. But I'm fond of looking at, you know, in Southeast Asia in 2013, when I first started investing there, there was about half a billion dollars of venture capital funding. Last year, $24 billion. LATAM, at SoftBank, we had launched a $5 billion LATAM fund in 2017, when there was only $3 billion of LATAM venture capital funding. Now there's $15 billion last year. And so, this, this really is, I think, the defining trend of the last decade, um, where it's not just the U.S. Uh, that has a monopoly on venture capital and entrepreneurship. And we're fond of saying at Antler that, you know, talent is um, evenly distributed, but capital is not. Uh, and, you know, we are both accelerating and riding the wave that helps, uh, you know, close the gap between entrepreneurship and capital globally. Yeah. So when you mean that, you mean the investing talent, like the 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 folks who are able to kind of the venture capital uh, fund talent on the GP level. I had specifically meant entrepreneurs. Okay. That, but but no, but actually, you bring up a good point. It's like, I think you know, I'm reading this book now. It's called The Power Law. It's about the history of venture capital. It's a great mm -hmm. book. I highly recommend it. That's guy Sebastian Malaby. Previous book was about hedge funds, but now he's focused his. Uh, uh, his research on the venture capital industry and his thesis, I'm going to uh, paraphrase it in a very pedantic, in a very childish way, but it's basically that, you know, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists are like peanut butter and jelly. It just tastes better together. And, and, you know, to have the growth in entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley, which still is the shining example of innovation and entrepreneurship in America um, and frankly, the world um, the venture capital industry was so essential for transmitting ideas, providing capital, providing customers, providing credibility to these businesses that are household names today. And I think that's happening in other regions. It's happening in Jakarta, it's happening in Tokyo, it's happening in Stockholm. And we're honestly, I think we're one of the few venture firms who are so hot on that trail of the globalization of VC. So if you're an individual or a family office and you're listening to this conversation, and you hear these, you know, Southeast Asian countries and this big story. I mean, accessibility is a real challenge, right? And you have experience working with firms that are physically located there. Can you talk through if you if you were an investor and you have a, a full kind of spectrum of VC firms that are pitching you for your capital and you want exposure to global tech, for instance? Yeah. What are the questions you need to be asking the GP in terms of their infrastructure? boots on the ground versus working with local partners. How do you sift through this to make sure that, in your opinion, 
those investors are actually getting the throughput and the true value creation that's happening within these countries. Yeah. Um, so I think in success in venture capital comes from really seeing everything. It comes from longevity, uh, like, you know, Sequoia is Sequoia because it was one of the first venture funds and has the most, what I call books on the shelf. They can draw from case studies of Apple and PayPal and, uh, you know, firm and others. Uh, and so the same is true with international VCs as well. If, you know, you should be looking for those GPs who have uh, the benefit of history, whether as an operator or an investor in this specific region, you should look for GPs who are well-connected. Um, many on this, listening to this podcast may be familiar with the PayPal mafia, but, you know, they may be less familiar with the Rappi Mafia. So Rappi was in LATAM. Uh, it's a LATAM company founded in 2015 and, you know, Sequoia SoftBank backed company that whose alumni have gone out and founded hun- over 150 companies. They may be even less familiar with what's called the Lazada Mafia. My, my partner at Antler, uh, he was a co-founder of Lazada. Lazada was sold to Alibaba in you know, 2018. And after that, uh, alumni at Lazada founded 480 new companies. Uh, it's true in the Middle East as well, where Kareem was sold to Uber um, in you know, 20, I want to say 2018 or so. And uh, there have been like, you know, you talk to all these entrepreneurs in the Middle East, there have been 80 plus companies founded that I am aware of um, that have come from the Kareem Mafia. So you should find GPs who are deeply embedded into the regional fabric, the the historical fabric of that technology ecosystem. Um, And then the last one, actually, what I think is super important um, is uh, you. uh, There was a you know to bring it back to the academic. uh, In college, I had learned in my government comparative government class: if you know one country, you don't know any, and you should look for. GPs who study uh, business models across regions, um, because it really is an advantage. I call it the time machine strategy, um, where you can look at a business model in one region. Maybe that's Uber or Snapchat or uh, Amazon, and you can actually find the analog in another region. And you're not taking business model risk. You know it works. You know how big it can get. You know how much capital it takes to get there. And so that has in many, in most of the great international success cases of investing, whether that's by Antler or SoftBank or Tiger, that has been a hallmark of great international VC investing. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. And you make this point in the presentation about how there are true barriers to entry within some of these markets, right? Uber cannot just go to India or famously China, where they kind of pulled the plug recently. There are cultural, um, linguistic... Yeah. issues that prevent them from just parachuting in. And I think you use the term tourist investor. If you're talking to a GP or you're looking at a deal, if you're an investor, you know, to, to one extent, 
And how do you determine if they are kind of boots on the ground operators native to that country that understand all these different dynamics that you and I would have, we wouldn't even know where to begin? Yeah. Um, so indeed, I think certain companies and entrepreneurs um, are more regionally defensible. They have regional moats. They operate. There's a famous quote about Alibaba. Um, Whereas eBay is a shark in the ocean, Alibaba is a crocodile in the Yangtze. Um, it's you know a, a, a company or an entrepreneur or even a GP that is comfortable in that in that ecosystem, right? And um, I think it really has. It, it sometimes you know Antler puts out these great reports actually on what are the shared characteristics of the successful entrepreneurs. And I think the same is true with GPs in that region too. But some of it is like a shared university, like, you know, in, in Berlin, you know, there, they, a lot of the entrepreneurs have all gone to the same, you know, um, business school, right. Or uh, in the U S similar, you know, a lot of the great entrepreneurs, they may have, you know, they've gone to, uh, they've gotten an electrical engineering degree from Stanford. Um, so there's some of these like shared um, institutions that they may have worked at or experiences that they may have that make them you know, uniquely suited to address this regional opportunity. Um, and then naturally, like any fund, you should be looking at track record of success. And the repeatability, you know, the great thing about some of these ecosystems is certain individuals are just lightning rods. Entrepreneurs or GPs are just lightning rods for future success. Um, you know, they, they continue to stay on the forefront of the best deals, the best companies, um, because they've stayed in the game for you know a long time. Yeah, you've got this great quote in your presentation you gave that Jack Ma said, it is better to be a crocodile in the Yangtze than a whale in the ocean. Yeah, that's a good one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, that was around when Alibaba just uh, you know ate eBay's lunch in China. Uh, I have actually written a, I've written a couple of blog posts about this on Medium, but that that indeed is a really good um, way to think about regional um, in investing. And it's, it is a little bit different than, you know, public market investing. Like if you're, you know, trying to trade stocks on the Jakarta Stock Exchange, this is a very different sort of value creation method. Now that might be the exit valve in the future. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I think um, the world is, you know, this is a very in venture, like you're really getting to know, helping coach, helping these companies grow. Like, here's one example. I was like, you know, I've, I got into this, in, I moved to Southeast Asia in 2015, um, had made an investment, brought to Masa at SoftBank an investment called Tokopedia. And um, the, and I was so excited about this investment that I moved out there and I worked out of their office, Tokopedia. This is like the Alibaba of Southeast Asia. It's a marketplace, an eBay-like marketplace in, in Indonesia. And uh, it was a very um, uh, Indonesian sort of website. It was messy. It had, you know, all these like, you know, very colorful Indonesian um, um, user experience. And it grew really dramatically such that now, seven years later, the company uh, having merged with the local ride handling company is now worth about $18 billion and represents about 4% of Indonesian GDP. Um, that not only speaks to being kind of like regionally advantaged, but translating that advantage into a dominant market position 
not unlike how conglomerates may rule like the oil, the energy conglomerate or the uh, um, manufacturing conglomerate may, uh, may extend into other areas of the economy and emerging markets, you get these new digital conglomerates as well, um, which are just extraordinary from a venture capital you know, uh, selection perspective. So let's talk about valuation and this concept of geographic arbitrage that you discuss. Are valuations actually different in these markets? And what is that impact on kind of going in versus exit? Yeah, they definitely are advantaged. Um, uh, and I think at this moment, as you alluded to, there's been a retrenchment in tech. And I think the tide has gone out even further in some of these emerging markets. So there's a, a really a lack of capital um, in many of the quote emerging uh, markets. And the US frankly has become a lot, it seems like the US to a certain extent has become more affordable or entrepreneurs are less, uh, less eager to optimize for the highest valuation like in the last six months or so. Um, but yeah, like I think you are getting more attractive valuations and you're not taking business model risk as much as you are in the US market, uh, let's say. So that you would, you would actually pay a premium for, you're not taking that risk and it's less competitive. Pretty easy, it's easier, this is, this is maybe my own pattern recognition, but I found it easier to identify the breakaway companies in some of these emerging ecosystems relative to the US, just because it's they're fewer and far between. It's like if you were in the Silicon, if you were in Silicon Valley in the 80s, you know, it seemed like you could drive and find the next, you know, Hewlett Packard or Apple computer. Um, and so I, I I think the valuations are more reasonable, the the assets are, I think, easier to identify, and you're not taking business model risk. All of that said, on the the case for investing in the U.S. is it's the greatest, it's the most robust economy in the world, and it has the greatest exit potential, the most robust capital markets, um, and uh, you know it's the frontier of innovation. And innovation, in and of itself, isn't a reason to invest, but innovation creates moats and barriers to entry that make really defensible businesses in the long term. Yeah, I guess, but in a different way. Do you think in today's environment, today's market, you're getting the investors getting rewarded for all of those additional risks that occur by investing within the frontier or emerging market? Take this example. There's a thing called the Midas list, of course. And this year, uh, three of the five Midas list investors were noted, notable for investing in Coupang, the South Korean e-commerce company. Um, and yet it... South Korea still makes up such a minority of people's portfolio, but that was such a home run because it was like they've effectively built the Amazon of Korea in the last eight years, right? And like that was really telling. By the way, the other two on the top five of the minus list were all crypto investors. I think it pays to be on the frontier. Maybe that's a sector, maybe that's a geography, but in venture, you know, if you're consensus and right, you're not making super normal returns. You have to be non-consensus and right. And in many respects today, despite what the numbers say about certain exits, non-consensus, like I think international investing in VC is still a non-consensus activity. Yeah, I, I would agree. 
And I'd be really curious. I mean, you and I both see these family office surveys and these benchmarks that come out. I mean, they all seem to want more allocation to venture capital, but I kind of wonder how much they're actually doing. Yeah. And then I really wonder about the international emerging, you know, um, how they think through allocation and access because it's, I think it's challenging for many of them to try to get their arms around it. On, you know, listen, on one hand, um, uh, yeah, there are many different, I mean, within, within the family office universe. Now, I, listen, I, until working at Antler, I was never in a fundraising seat. So I hadn't really given this much thought. I was always, you know, at Comcast or SoftBank where the money, they just have money to give you and you invest it. Um, but having a little more empathy and perspective from the seat of the allocators, um, listen, it's it, venture is a long road to liquidity. There should, you know, it, it, uh, in emerging markets, given the, um, the longer timeframes between rounds and the less robust capital market activities, it's actually probably even a longer road. Um, so on one hand, for investors of all stripes, that illiquidity is challenging uh, for a long period of time. It's a lot to stomach, um, you know, which is, uh, yeah. So, but on the other hand, many uh, kind of far-seeing uh, uh, family offices who are thinking about generational uh, returns um, may, in looking at the statistics of venture capital and the statistics of international venture capital, understand that, okay, yeah, if you're, if you're going to invest for 10, 15, 20 years, uh, this actually might be, you know, one of the most, because of the trends we talked about, companies staying private for longer, the innovation economy accelerating, uh, this might be a very desirable asset class to kind of set it and forget it, um, you know, and then wake up in 15 years and say, wow, I, I was at a 30% IRR in that venture capital fund. Right. I, I was going to say the flip side is I think families, given the patient capital structure, lack of outside third-party LPs with the time views, they're really well positioned to take advantage of this. So it's a function of education, I think. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, actually, from my perspective in raising for the the Antler funds, like there are a lot of family offices that come from international backgrounds. You know, it could be uh, an Indian immigrant who has done extraordinarily well in, in a U.S. BPO. It could be, um, you know, family, European, a European family that is seeking to diversify away from a particular industrial uh, uh, you know, uh, wealth or real estate or something. And, and tech, I think they, I, I've learned are a little bit more open to this like international venture capital opportunity. Um, I've noticed uh, probably just by virtue of country of origin and, you know, seeing how these economies have developed um, even in the last 10 years, like India and Indonesia, you get you have this tremendous growth in some of these economies. So that's where I want to go as we wrap up. What's the most exciting idea that you're working on right now? And what's the most exciting country to invest in, in your opinion, right now? The most exciting idea. Um, we are, let me think, um, you know, working, like, I don't know, I'm pretty excited by this, uh, this idea of, you know, alternative modes of payment and the identity layer on the internet and been, you know, working on an investment into, a, you know, a pay with your face company um, that has applicability. It, it works in the U.S., of course, but actually in some emerging economies where it's, 
you know, where you're moving to more digital currency, um, but not everyone has a workable phone. You know, biometrics are becoming actually the standard for payments and they're kind of uh, leapfrogging the card networks. And that that's a really cool thing because um, you actually can uh, uh, pay for goods and services cheaper with your face because there's no reliance on the card networks and the interchange fees. Uh, you know, that I think that's a pretty neat idea that, you know, I'm working on and trying to wrap my head around. Um, that's very international too, right? Like in Africa and the Middle East and LATAM, there's a greater need for biometrics than in the US where most everyone has an identity, social security number, uh, you know, it's credit card, et cetera. Um, I think, you know, the most exciting region for me, and this is kind of, I think the US remains extraordinary exciting has become a lot more exciting now that there's been a macro correction and a lot of quote tourists are moving out of the venture capital uh, realm or have been burned, you know, touched the stove a little bit and are, are, have moved away from venture capital. So the U.S. is really exciting. Don't get me wrong. But among emerging economies, I actually like give it. I'm, I'm amazed by what's happening in the Middle East. Um, you know, you have a really enlightened leadership in places like the Emirates, like Dubai and Abu Dhabi, who are driving that region forward. You have the opening of Saudi Arabia, which, um, you know, for better, for worse, uh, has changed more in the last 18 months than it has in the last 180 years. That, that's not my quote. That was someone told me that when I was there. Um, you have Pakistan, which, you know, is 220 million people, not too, you know, larger than Brazil, um, you know, two-thirds the size of the U.S. or so is, um, uh, you know, back in 2017, there were 40 million internet users there. Now there's about 150 million. Like, that's a pretty extraordinary change when 100 million people get access to the internet. Uh, and then in Egypt, like, there's a lot of great technical talent as well. So you, you, you peel off different countries in the Middle East, and each is exciting in, in, in its own right, not to mention the fact that there are these huge sovereign wealth funds that are very interested in catalyzing their own economies. Um, so that to me is uh, a super exciting region, maybe followed by Australia, which often is forgotten by international investors, but it's still a smallish market, but there's just a lot of really cool um, technology and FinTech happening there as well. Yeah, your first comment reminds me, I, I, I lived in Germany for a year in college. This would have been like in the early 2000s and we visited East Germany and I remember them telling us that wireless internet was standard in East Germany and that more people had cell phones in East Germany because when the communists ran it, they had no technological advances. So they didn't have the, the same infrastructure that the West did. So they were able to leapfrog West Germany within like five or 10 years. It was like the wow. tech advantage location because they had this 20 or 30 years where nothing happened. They didn't have to kind of recreate the wheel. It's always kind of made me think of your first comment, which is, you know, these places that we view as, you know, third world, oftentimes more have more advanced technological prowess than we do because they don't have these yeah. old ancillary infrastructures keeping them down from progressing. Yeah, this is a silly analogy, but I'll say it anyway. Have you ever read the book Shoe Dog? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a great book, right? Um, it's a great book, yeah. Uh, so Phil Knight, who founded Nike, uh, I, I actually he, he went to Japan after graduating Stanford Business School and, you know, like find himself and all of that. And, 
Uh, it talks about how he ended up meeting a shoe company called Onitsuka. And he convinced, convinced Mr. Onitsuka that he could be the lead sales guy for the Onitsuka running shoes in the U.S. And he went back and sold a lot of Onitsuka shoes in the U.S. Um, I'm actually wearing Onitsuka shoes right now. Uh, but he created Nike out of that idea they transplanted from Japan. And it was the craftsmanship. It was the design. It was the lightweight aspect that he kind of, uh, you know, imported uh, to, to the U.S. And so I'm constantly searching for these ideas, both U.S. to other countries or other countries or, or like, you know, Asia, you know, to the to the U.S. that I think um, prove out certain human behaviors and all that. Again, like, you know, talent and ideas are not merely monopolized in the U.S. There's a lot of great ideas elsewhere. So the, the shoe dog example always sticks with me, not only because I mean, partially because I always wear the Onitsuka shoes. <laughs> yeah, they've become very popular right yeah, now. Uh, well, Teddy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I uh, really appreciate it. It was awesome um, and it's very thought-provoking. So um, definitely encourage people to engage with you and connect. Um, and for our listeners, don't forget to leave us a review and let us know the favorite part of today's episode. And final question for you as we wrap up, you're a worker. We're recording this on Labor Day Friday and you're planning on working through the weekend. You travel a ton. What's one thing that you do every day to bring yourself peace in your life? Yeah, I'm not the, you know, running is meditation for me. Um, so probably like the people listening to this podcast, I listen to podcasts and I run long distances. And that is like, you know, meditation for me. And I think, you know, brings me back to center. Uh, so that's, that's it. Yeah. Awesome. Teddy, thanks so much, man. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Talk to you later. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.